Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for being here and joining me tonight on Next on the T. It's always a privilege getting to share this time with you. Before we get started tonight, I want to give a shout out to one of our new sponsors, the Macklemore, which is a beautiful community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Lookout Mountain. And folks, you've got to see this place to believe it. Go look it up online at themacklemore.com. Everything about what they have up there is beautiful. The course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend Kip Henley, who was on the show last week, he tweeted out recently that outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. Tonight, folks, my first guest is going to be our resident director of instruction and the busiest man, apparently, in golf, Tom Patry. One of the themes of tonight's show is going to be around Bryson DeChambeau and his monster drives. I'm going to get TP's thoughts on whether it's sustainable or is it just a back injury waiting to happen. Plus, we'll also talk about whether it's time for course designers and superintendents to narrow the fairways and put hazards out there around the 320 to 350 yard mark to give the players something to think about beyond just bombing it as far as they can off the tee. We'll hear what TP thinks when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from 1983 PGA champion and two-time players champion, and that's Hal Sutton. I'll talk to Hal about his memories of being a part of four Ryder Cup teams, plus being the 2004 Ryder Cup captain, and if the pressure of playing in a Ryder Cup is higher or different than it is playing in a major. We'll also talk about all the demands that uh, is on the time of a captain. There's a lot more to being one than just making four captains pick and filling out a lineup card and then getting on a golf cart. We'll hear about all of that. Plus, he had the 83 PGA Championship, the Wanamaker Trophy, right? We hear so many crazy stories about hockey players that when they win the Stanley Cup and the things that they do with the cup when it's their day, want to hear if Howe did anything crazy with the Wanamaker Trophy beyond just putting it up on the mantle. Looking forward to having him back as part of the show about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round down tonight, Joe, with a return visit from former LPGA Commissioner Charlie Meacham. Charlie joined me just a couple of weeks ago and was so fascinating. Such great stories that I couldn't wait to get him back on the show. Tonight, we're going to talk about more stories about his relationships with Jack Nicklaus, Neil Armstrong, Arnold Palmer, Paul Brown. Let's get this in a, in a, in a kind of weird twist. Tommy Thayer of Kiss. So I want to talk about all of those stories and a whole lot more when Charlie joins me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, information, and tips coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Want to start out by saying hello and thank you to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and remind you about their shows. Please check out Mitch's podcast. It's called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it online at GolfTripX.com. 
It's also available on Audioboom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Aaron Bunch are going to let you know about some of the great courses around the U.S. and Canada that you should go stay and play at. Plus, they're also going to talk about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Go online to GolfTripX.com and check out their podcast. Matthew's show is fantastic. It's called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. You can stream his show online by going to WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. Features our good friend Perry French in the very first segment every week, so you know a lot of great tips and content going to come right at the top of the show. Matthew has a lot of other great guests, and he's a wonderful friend and a fantastic host. His show, is, again, is called Backspin Golf on ESPN Radio, WLXG and WLXG.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls that are played by Ricky Fowler, John Romp, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. You're going to know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X. And now both of them are available in high visibility yellow. You guys know how much I love the yellow golf ball. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out by going online to tailormade.com for more information. All right, now back with me here on Next on the T is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Tom's home base is at Esplanade Golf and Country Club in Naples, Florida, but this summer he's all over the place. We're going to need a GPS tracker on TP's car to help us keep track of where he's at. If he's not in your area this week, he just might be soon, but if you still want to get a golf lesson from him, download the V1 video app and send him a video of your golf swing through there, or send him a question on his website, tompatry.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter while you're on his site. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. He was a two-time first-team All-American at Florida Southern, and he won the Division II National Championship in 1981, was inducted into their Sports Hall of Fame in 2004. Tom's got his own show now on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Instagram Live with some Really fantastic guest, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. And it's always a privilege to have him back with me on the show. Hey, TP, how are you, my friend? Tricky boys! <laughs> I always love when you start off the show like that. How are you, TP? Chrissy, man, I, I need a pillow. I'm tired, man. No doubt. Dude, you yeah, are pretty. all over the map. Where, where yeah, in the world pretty. is Tom Patry? Uh, Tom Patry right now is at Hidden Creek in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. And for those who you don't know where that is, that's about uh, 15 miles from Atlantic City, Atlantic City Boardwalk. Um, it's a core Crenshaw golf course, part of the Dormy Network. And as you know, Chris, I'm now a Dormy ambassador. Um, why they did that or why they let me in here, God only knows, but thank them for that. Um, so it's been my first week on property, had the Let's see, I've had five golf schools done this week here, and I've got one more tomorrow, and then I hop in the car the next morning and drive uh, about 12 hours to Indianapolis, Indiana for a week, and then uh, get in the car and drive 18 hours to Amargansett, New York, which if you don't know where that is, that's about uh, five miles short of Montauk Point, the tip of Long Island, and do five half-day short game schools there. And then I spend two days with one of my juniors out there, and then I drive about uh, six hours to Saratoga, New York, and after that, I don't know where the hell I'm going, but I'm sure I'm going somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) My goodness, TP. Um, But for our listeners that don't remember about the Dormy Network, talk about your ambassadorship 
and uh, what that's all about. Yeah, it's really pretty cool, Chris, to be honest with you. I, I was asked to be part of the network recently. They, uh, Dormy Network is a collection of six destination clubs, um, Hidden Creek being one of them, Victoria National, Riggs Ranch in San Antonio, Valley Hack in outside of Roanoke, Virginia, Arbolinks in Nebraska, and the Dormy Club in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Um, all high-end destination clubs, all with uh, beautiful, beautiful cottages on property, great practice facilities. This uh, Hidden Creek happens to be a core Crenshaw golf course, as is uh, the Dormy Club in Pinehurst. Um, really good. Uh, Victoria National, as you know, in uh, outside of Evansville, Indiana, hosts the Corn Ferry Finals. Um, really high-end destinations, great network of clubs. And, I, I, you know, I don't want to do this on the show so much, but you can join the network for a number that I can't believe you can join it for. It's, it's probably the greatest deal in America. So what they've asked me to do as a uh, ambassador is just basically expose the network to my database and my players. Um, I've had, uh, like I said, several schools here this week, and they've been blown away by Hidden Creek. It's a really, really fine golf course. You know, Core Cruncher just doesn't build any bad stuff, and the place is really fantastic. It's in great condition. Uh, I just got off the golf course about an hour ago with one of my students um, who loved it, absolutely loved it. And it's funny, when I get them here, I don't have to really sell them on the concept. I, I, I don't try to. But every day so far this week, before I even had lunch, they asked me if they could get a, a membership packet and what it's all about. So it, that's a, just a tribute to how good the facility is. And rumor has it that the old man shot 71 out at the creek today. True? The old man um, found the club fake more times than he's found it recently. And uh, and, and made, finally figured out Bill Core's greens a little bit, made a couple of putts. And uh, I uh, I did whistle around in 71, yes. There you go. Good for you, TP. So let's also talk about your show, Thursday nights, 8 o'clock, Instagram Live. You've got Bob Ford I've got, I've as got, your guest I've coming up. Yes, a huge guest coming up in a couple of weeks. I've got Chris Mascaro coming up, not this Thursday, but the following Thursday. Uh, and I want you to know you're following royalty. You're following Bob Ford this week. Um, so that's, that's a that's, tough act. That's pretty special. By the way, you're you're no sandwiched in between you're sandwiched in between Bob Ford and Bob Jones, Doctor Bob Jones. So I mean, wow, that's 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 pretty good bookends, Mascaro. I hope you're up to that, man. I mean, I don't I don't, no, like I, I don't know. I don't I I don't <laughs> think I got the bat speed to fit to fit in between those two guys. <laughs> so I uh, I started about uh, I started, actually started during the pandemic, Chris, because I was bored out of my mind. I wanted something else to do. I don't, I don't have enough on my plate right now, so I. Uh, I started doing the show on th- yeah exactly. What am I thinking? I started doing the show on Thursday nights at eight o'clock, and uh, just as a whim, and it's kind of taken off. Uh, I've had some great folks on. I've had Jimmy Roberts from NBC, and I've had uh, I've had Damon Hack from the Golf Channel. I've got Bob Ford coming up. I just got a commitment today from Jay Wright, who's the head uh, basketball coach at Villanova. He's coming on in a couple of weeks. Um, so it's it's been really fun. People who love golf and people who are around golf and people like yourself. So it's been a lot of fun. We've got a lot of followers already and uh, it's kind of growing, but it was, it's kind of just been an accident. It's a, uh, I should call it the pandemic show. It's really as a result of, of the virus <laughs> being over and being bored, but it's for, been fun. It's fun. For those who don't know the details about who Bob Ford is, remind them. Well, Bob Ford is not only a really dear friend of mine, but he's, he is basically in my, in my estimation, I don't think anybody would disagree with me. The consummate PJ club professional. He's the uh, 
professional emeritus at Oakmont, retired there a couple of years ago, and still is the professional at Seminole in Juno Beach, Florida. Bob, not only being a good teacher, uh, is an unbelievable player. He's qualified in his career for 13 major championships. He's a winner of the Bob Jones, the prestigious Bob Jones Award from the USGA, and he's the honorary starter at the U.S. Open. Um, he's got a long list. I can go on and on, but he's he's really the preeminent club professional. He's he's like the model PGA professional and just uh, one of the icons in the PGA of America. And I've been blessed to have him as a friend for almost 30 years. And uh, I just left him a couple weeks ago. I, I made a side trip uh, between Indianapolis and coming to Hidden Creek and uh, spent two days at Oakmont with him playing and. I, I guess I'm trying to think, Chris. I'm 61, so I think Bob's 66 now, and he still plays pretty nice golf. He he qualified and played in the, uh, I think the British Senior Open last year. Um, so he still plays pretty good golf. TP, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of golf right now, and um, your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau. Do you marvel at what you're seeing from him and the, and the and the club head speed that he's able to generate, or do you look at it and say that's a back injury waiting to happen? I am Hans, and you are Fonz, and we are here to pump you up. <laughs> what is that? What is what in the hell? I turned on the TV this week because I heard so much about it, and I had to see it, um, and I hadn't really seen other than what I've seen on social media, and I and I watched. The I, I was working all day, so I watched the highlights in the evening and the replay in the evening. He he looks like he looks like a cross between the Fuji blimp and and uh, yeah, I, and and Bozo the clown. I mean, this guy looks like it doesn't even look like the same person. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, and Chris, I don't you know, listen, I don't know anything, but I somebody's got to explain to me uh, medically how you put on forty five pounds of mass. In, in under a year. Somebody's going to explain that to me. Um, and I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but it, it, I don't know how you do that and, and, and not die. Um, so if you think it's, to answer your question, to get to your question, I'm, I'm rambling here, but yeah, at the speed he's swinging it at, uh, with the force he's swinging it at, I don't, I don't know how your back holds up very long. Um, We've watched Tiger go through some tremendous injuries and, and some real heartache with it, with his body. Uh, I don't think you change your body that radically in that short a period of time and swing the club with that kind of aggression that many days in a row, and and you're not walking the tightrope to injury. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, so many guys want to probably jump on the bandwagon now, Chris, but I, I think that now it's getting to the point where they're swinging the club and you, and you know how much these guys practice. These guys had a lot of golf balls and of course it's seven days every week or six days every week. I don't know if the lower thoracic spine is built to take that, you know, and how long that lasts. So in order for you to, to, I think what you alluded to a moment ago, TP, I think more and more guys are starting to look at this and, you know, I mean, Every sport's a copycat sport, right? We talk about that in the NFL all the time. It's a copycat league. You you find something that works, and everybody wants to try to do it. And now you're going to start to. Are we going to start to see guys start to? You know, if he wins, you know, two three more tournaments, throws a major in. Is that what we're we're going to be at with guys trying to put on twenty, thirty, forty pounds over the you know over the winter months and start to swing out of their minds, which they already do, many of them. But is is are we in danger that that's what golf's going to become at the pro level? 
Well, I mean, I certainly, I, I have to agree with you, Chris. You know, the, the tour, especially the men's tour, and I was so fickle. You know, somebody somebody shows up doing something, and everybody jumps on it. You know, a couple of years ago it was Sean Foley. Now it's George Gankus, and now it's Bryson DeChambeau. It's kind of like flavor of the week. So everybody kind of jumps on board, and then they jump off board. I mean, Sean, who was hotter than Sean Foley two years ago? And who's hotter than George Gankus right now? And now we have Bryson DeChambeau doing what he's doing. So. These guys are always looking for the edge, always looking for something to make them better. The question about this is, though, this is not this is not a swing technique. This is a complete lifestyle body change. And when you start messing around with your body, we watched David Duvall do this. We've watched a number of guys through the years go through things like their body, lose weight, gain weight, do this, do that. And we've had a couple of real disasters to some careers that have, that have really been derailed. Um, I think you got to be very careful with this stuff. I mean, I think what you're going to see more than anything, Chris, is that you're going to see PGA Tour careers, I think, get shorter. Because I think, you know, a number of guys will go down this road and their body will not hold up. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll blow out a disc or a ruptured disc or a shoulder or something. And, and they'll never be the same again. So I, I think, I guess my advice to anybody thinking about this is proceed with caution. Just proceed with caution. So from the opposite perspective, Tom, course designers, superintendents to to try to come back, because now we hear a lot about, we hear the phrase bomb and gouge, right? Hit it as far as you can. Hope it's in the fairway or, or maybe just in, in the first cut so you can sort of gouge it out of the rough and onto the green. So, you know, maybe you're, you're driving it you know, well over 300 yards. You're leaving yourself with a short iron to the green. No problem. Bang on the green. Are we going to have to have designers and superintendents start to put things out there at the, you know, 310, 320, 350 mark where there's a hazard? You know, we, we're growing in, the, we're, we're narrowing the fairways, growing up the roughs. Because I, I, like we talked about this last week uh, on the show, and you know, I'm sure you and I have talked about this too. You know, the toothpaste is out of the tube with respect to dialing back the golf ball and the equipment. So is it now on the designers and the superintendents? to combat the distance issue? Well, I, I think a couple of things, Chris. I think, you know, let's not, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. A couple of years ago, not so long ago, they played a U.S. Open at Marion, which is traditionally by far and away the shortest course on the U.S. Open Rota. And leading up to that Open at Marion, all, all, everything that was written was about, everything that was written and talked about on TV was how they're going to destroy Marion. It's too short. It shouldn't be a part of the Open Rota anymore. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's past its time. And remember what Justin Rose shot there to win. I think he shot even or one over. Um, so that was all course set up and that place held up really, really well because it's that good and that difficult on and around the putting surfaces. And obviously the golf course was set up in a way that there was a lot of penal rough. So I think in day to day PGA tour golf, listen, birdies are sexy. Birdies sell, distance sells. Um, bombing itself, you know, making eagle cells. But if you want to change that and you want part to be a better part of score, which I don't think will ever happen in day-to-day golf, I think birdies sell. But in majors, certainly, I think, you know, that the landing areas have to change. I think the, the depth of the rough has to change. Uh, I think green speeds and pin locations have to change. I still think you have to put the golf ball very, very well. You can't spin the ball out of deep rough. You can't get the ball out of deep rough. And the width of fairways have to change because not only are they hitting it far, Chris, but they're hitting it straight. They're hitting it pretty much, you know, it's amazing how far he hit that ball 
during that last week at Rocket Mortgage, and and really, relatively speaking, how straight he hit a couple offline, but he had, he had a lot of bombs all right in the middle of the fairway too. Um, so I think you have to make the landing areas more penal, not necessarily the bunkers necessarily at 350, but I think the rough length, if you want to defend the golf course, has to change. I think people like Jack at Memorial will not will not take kindly to DeChambeau taking apart in Muirfield Village, you know, limb from limb because he drives it up there and he has wedge into every green. So I think not necessarily this year he hasn't enough time, but in the future you'll see places like Muirfield Village and Invitationals, maybe, maybe Riviera, places like that, get a lot more penal off the tee. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little instruction. Um, I've heard you talk about before that <laughs> that being a good teacher, you've got to be a good listener first so that you can understand what each one of your players wants. Not what you want, but what they want to get out of their golf game. Talk about having that conversation, and then how do you adjust based on what they tell you? I think that's, you know, Chris, I think that's, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm being all seriousness. I think that as I watch and observe some younger teachers today start a golf lesson, they just start, you know, watching somebody hit golf balls and tell them what they want to do or what they want them to do and never asking them what they're there for, what they, what, they, what their goals are. I think one of the things I find out when I ask people a series of questions at the beginning of a lesson, I ask a lot of questions before I get started is, a lot of people come to me not knowing what they want. So I said, listen, we we got to determine what you really want here first. It's not about what I want. It's what you want. I mean, what what is your misdo? What is your misgo? What's your contact quality like? You know, what's the strength of your game? What's the weakness of your game? And, and again, I'm asking questions that are their perception. So I, I don't take it. I don't take it for face value. I take it with a grain of salt. And then I watch them hit some shots. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I played golf at Jay Wright yesterday, the coach at Villanova, and it was a good friend of mine. And uh, we played the first four holes at Hidden Creek, and he hit um, he hit four kind of shots that went really kind of hard left, you know, shaped hard left. And I said to him, Coach, is that your is that your normal miss? And he said, No, not really, because I don't know where that's coming from. So I looked over at one of our playing partners, who's his brother-in-law. And he kind of winked at me and he goes, he shakes his head like, nodding yes. So I, I continued to watch for a while. And he hit, during the course of the rest of the round, he hit every shot he missed, he hit hard left. And we got done afterwards and sat down and had dinner. I said, Coach, I asked you on the fourth tee if that was your miss. And you said, no. But that's, that's every, every shot you missed today was exactly the same. There was no, there was no deviation from the pattern. Do you understand that that is your miss? And he goes, well, I guess maybe it is then. And here's a guy that's a, a really astute, high-level coach in another sport. And, you know, we he, we don't see ourselves very clearly sometimes. We prejudice our own view. So that's why you need a pair of trained eyes on you to really kind of decipher what's going on. So I'll sit down and I'll say to Chris Mascaro, I'll say, Chris, what do you want to accomplish? What would you like to have happen to your game? If you could, you know, if you could create your own wish list, what would the ball do? What would you like to see the ball do? Because I can make any of those things happen for you as a coach over time, as long as you're willing to put the work in, what do you want to see happen? Do you want to see better contact? Do you want to see a particular shape, a certain trajectory? You know, do you want to chip and putt better? You know, what's your strength? What's your weakness? So I make sure that they really commit to what they want before we get started. 
So let's talk about a couple of the hard shots in golf. When we have a severe downhill lie, maybe the ball didn't roll all the way into the bunker. It sort of just trickled over the edge. Now we sort of got that downhill lie and we got to get it over the bunker and onto the green. How do we execute that shot? Why, why, why would you do something like that to me, Chris? Why would you do that? Do you not like me? <laughs> Dude, you, you're, you're the guru. You Come on, help me out. Why, why would anybody want that picture in their head at, 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 at 830 at night? Seriously. Okay, <laughs> here we go. So you're, you're, you, got a, you got a downhill lie. You got a bunker in front of you. So the first thing I say to people about that is, listen, you put yourself in a very precarious place. Okay, you, you've. You've, you've made an error. You're now in a very difficult position, and you're short-sighted yourself behind a bunker, and you got a downhill eye over a bunker to a green. You know, maybe the pin, you know, maybe proxi- close proximity to the pin is not attainable. So the first thing you've got to make a judgment on is, is, is without putting a lot of pressure on yourself, is 15 feet a good shot? Is 10 feet a good shot? Is 25 feet a good shot from that condition? I think people get in those situations, first of all, Chris, and, and I'm talking about management now. They try to hit the miracle shot, you know, and, and I think in every round of golf, there's three or four junctures in the round that if you take your medicine 20 feet past the hole, two putt, make five and get out of there, instead of trying to do something really cute and dumping it and then dumping it again and three putting and making seven or eight, I think that those four critical junctures in your round can change your whole day and really obviously radically affect your score. So I think first thing you got to do is make a real, real sound judgment about, hey, listen, based on my skill level, you know, what's really attainable here? What's safely attainable? Is 15 feet pretty good and two putt and get out of here? And, and let's, let's not, you know, let's not burn the ship down on one hole. That's number one. Number two is when you hit that shot, obviously the lie is going to be a big factor. You know, if the lie is decent, and we've now got this thing called a 60-degree wedge in our bag, and we can get the club on the ball halfway decently. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a little downhill or not. We play it a little bit further back in our stance. We get a little weight on our left leg, and we make a very, very crisp stroke and pitch the ball, like I said, 10 or 15 feet by, no harm, no foul. Now, if the lie is, the lie is compromised and the ball is really sitting down, now we gotta, you know, we got to make sure we accelerate through the shot. we got to play the ball further back in our stance because it is a downhill lie. Anytime we have a downhill eye, we put the ball closer to the uphill foot, which in this case would be your right foot or your trail foot if you're a right-handed player, okay? And, and we don't get really cute. We hit, a, we hit a very conventional shot, like I said, 10 or 15 feet past the hole and get out of there. So I think, I think lie dictates a lot of those things. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about the uphill lie when, it, when the ball is above our feet. So it's not straight up the hill. We got the ball above our feet. Tendency, at least for me, is to pull hook that shot. How do we hit that shot more successfully and give ourselves a chance? Hello, we, how far away are we, Chris? Let's say we're about 150 yards out. Okay, so you, you're absolutely right on here. In fact, if you, if you don't do anything to manipulate the shot, the ball should go left. So I say to people, listen, the ball's supposed to go left, so don't try to prevent it from going left. Let, you know, let's first of all pick out a starting line that's a little right of the target, depending on how severely above your feet it is, and just make our golf swing and, and let the ball go left. But things, when the ball's above your feet, okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to choke down on the club a little bit more, and we're probably going to take something with a little bit more aloft. Because if we, if we turn the club over like we will on a side hill above our feet lie, we're going to shut the face down a little bit. One of the reasons it goes left 
this goes to Gosselin gets a little flatter, a little more circular, and you create a little bit more club face rotation, and you, and you deal off the club. So I go up and loft a little bit. I aim a little right. And basically what I'm doing is I'm hitting a real, I'm hitting a pull. I'm hitting an intentional pull. And boy, we know those pulls, they go really far and they feel good, but they go left. So depending on how far above your feet it is, you have to make a judgment as a player about how far right you want to aim and, and allow it to go left. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners again about your show coming up Thursday night and how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing on your, on your website and over social media as well. Yeah, Crystal, Thursday night's Instagram Live, TP Golf Instagram Live, is 8 o'clock every week on Thursday night. And like I said, we've got Bob Ford this week. We have the effervescent and, and intelligent Christmas Mascara the following week. And then Dr. Bob Jones after that. And we actually have, I'm sorry, before Bob, I'm wrong. Before Bob Jones, we have Len Matisse. We have Len Matisse from the Champions Tour, um, who's a former LA Open winner first, and then Bob Jones. Um, so you're really sandwiching some superstars there, Chris. I hope you have your A game that night. Um, uh, dude, so I'm telling you, I don't have the bat speed to be in that lineup. No, I understand. You're, 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 as a Red Sox fan, you'll have no problem whatsoever. You'll, you'll step up <laughs> to the plate and hit a home You'll be fine. No doubt. And then, uh, of course, social media, TomPatry.com is the website. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, two pages. Um, and if anybody can find a bed for me on the highway somewhere between here and Indianapolis, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, so, but I'm all over the place. And most of that information is on my newsletter, which you can subscribe to uh, via my website. And, and I can't think of anything else to say. I'm so exhausted. I'm going to go to bed now. Is that okay? Can I go to bed now, Chris? Absolutely, TP. Go put your head down on a pillow, my friend. I can't thank you enough for being here. You're the best. Look forward to catching up with you in a couple of weeks. Tell Mr. Sutton I said hi. Have a great trip. Have a great show, rest of the show. And also, tell Charlie Meacham I said hi. He's a dear friend. I will absolutely do that. Take care, TP. Go get some sleep. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. Good night now, bud. That's a great Tom Patry. P-A-T-R-I. TomPatry.com and at TomPatry on social media. I'm telling you, folks. Tom's show is absolutely wonderful to to watch on uh, on Instagram Live. He does a great job. A lot of great guests that uh, that uh, we we share together, and and uh, a lot of people that I get to learn about. So check him out online and, and make sure to give him a follow as well. All right, before I get to my next guest, Hal Sutton, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world. And that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and the feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me here on Next on the TS 1983 PGA Champion and Player of the Year, Hal Sutton. Let me remind you about Hal's background. He's from Shreveport, Louisiana. Played his college golf at Centenary College, where he was named the 1980 College Player of the Year. During his time there, he won 14 tournaments, 
He was a two-time All-American, and he led Centenary to the NCAA tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. How won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship in dominating fashion by defeating Bob Lewis 9-8 and eight in their 36-hole championship match. Turned pro in 1981. Got his first win on the PGA Tour in 1982 at the Walt Disney World Classic in a playoff over Bill Britton. And that year, he was named the Tour's Rookie of the Year. 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. 1998, he won the Tour Championship here in Atlanta in a playoff over B.J. Singh. In 2000, he won the Players' Championship for a second time, this time by one stroke over Tiger Woods, saying probably the most quotable line in golf history, be the right club today. Howe played on four Ryder Cup teams, and he was the captain of the 2004 team. In all, he won 14 times on tour, finished second 18 times, 135 top 10s and 239 top 25. And it's a huge thrill to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Hal, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, I'm happy to be here. Hal, I wanted to start our time tonight by talking about your Ryder Cup uh, experience and particularly being a captain in 2004. and and, you know, from everything I've heard, and I got to imagine, there's a heck of a lot more to being captain than making, a, you know, four captain's picks now today, filling out a lineup card and then jumping on a golf cart during the tournament and riding around. There's a lot, I'm sure, demands of your time all along the way in that process over the two years in between uh, Ryder Cup uh, events. Talk about what your experience is like as a captain. Uh, well... You know, the first year that you're announced, there's not as much. They do a lot of uh, training you. Uh, they teach you how to uh, answer a question if you don't like what they've asked, how to bridge to another subject. That's one of the things that they uh, spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, but anyway, the second year, there's a lot more to do, uh, especially if you're captain in the United States, because you travel around promoting the Ryder Cup and the different major uh, markets. So uh, there was a lot of travel involved uh, in the second year. Uh, and you're right, there is a lot of responsibility that goes along with it. Uh, you know, you're trying to watch the players and see who possible picks would be. And, uh, you know, you're playing out a lot of different scenarios as as the year continues to progress. Um Anyway, managing clothes, managing, uh, talking about course setup, talking about, uh, you know, different uh, pairings of people that you know will make the team. Um, many things play out over the course of that year. Along the way, Hal, and particularly as the event gets close, you have players reaching out to you, lobbying you for, for one of the captain's picks? You know, not really. I didn't have a lot of people uh, lobbying to be on the team. Uh, uh, I actually had a few people I wondered if they really wanted to be on the team. Uh, you know, I grew up watching the Ryder Cup and dreaming about being on Ryder Cup teams. and um, So for me, you know, I watched it all year long whenever I was personally eligible for it. You know, I was trying to make every team that I could. And, uh, you know, it's just the greatest form of competition in my mind. 
you know, we don't play a lot of match play on uh, in golf at the professional level, and to be able to go play match play golf is fun and uh, and pressure packed at the Ryder Cup. And uh, anyway, I always look forward to it myself. Talking about the the pressure, how is is the pressure? You know, talking about it from a from a player standpoint, you uh, being being on the team four times. Is the pressure playing in a Ryder Cup different, the same as playing in a major? How, what what is that pressure like? Well, it's it's different because you're playing for your country as well, and you're playing for your teammates. And you know, when you're playing in a major, you're playing for yourself. Um, you know, if you let if something happens and goes wrong, you hurt no one but yourself. Uh, if something happens in a Ryder Cup, you've hurt your teammates and you've hurt the team effort and you know no one wants to be part of that you always want to contribute and uh, so you know there's a lot of pressure that goes along with that what about as as a captain because like you mentioned when you're a player you know at least when you're out there playing you have some control over what the outcome of the match is going to be as a captain all you can do pretty much is is you know put put the players in the matchups that you think are going to give them the best opportunity to win. And then you can just watch things unfold. Plus you've also got the added burden of all of us second guessing everything you do. And, and maybe you second guess yourself, but talk about the pressure, uh, what it's like being the captain and dealing with that. Uh, the captain is a, is a difficult role because you can't really have any effect on the, I mean, you know, a lot of people say that the pairings have some outcome. I'm not, quite sure I'm sold on that. You know, the truth of the matter is if you're playing good, nobody stops you from playing good. And if you're not playing well, well then it's really hard to find it before a pressure packed event like the Ryder Cup. And uh, you know, from a, a captain standpoint, everybody goes out hopeful and um however it's unfolding, you can't do anything about it. You just gotta watch it unfold. And um, you know, in the Ryder Cup, one of the reasons why spectators enjoy it so much is you see people do things that are extraordinary because they want it so bad or, you know, they're in a pressure cooker situation and, you know, they just rise to the occasion. And whether it's on the American side or on the European side, I've seen so many shots hold in the Ryder Cup over my course of being a professional that, you know, I was always i never was surprised because i just saw it all the time and people rise to the occasion did you see people whether it was guys you were teamed with or part of your team that you were surprised by in, in some level like you know, emotionally they came out of the show because they got so jacked up that they you know, whether it was a singles or you know in a in a you know two ball or four ball um did anyone surprise you with their level of emotion and how they rose to the occasion? Uh, I'd have to think about that for a little bit. You know, uh, you don't see a lot of people uh, become somebody else out there. They remain themselves, but, you know, some inward, you know, uh, David Duvall in 99, you know, he uh, – he was a quiet player and, and didn't say much, but he got pretty enthusiastic about the 99. And Justin Leonard obviously did as well that uh, last nine holes. Uh, 
Um, but overall, you you don't change personalities in it. Now let's talk about pressure in a different way, and and um, we hear guys like you know Mr. Nicholas or Tiger talk about loving the pressure, about you know that being part of the fun of playing the game because when you feel that pressure, it's because you put yourself in a position to win. Did you relish the pressure? Uh, I always enjoyed it because that meant I was in an uncomfortable spot of uh, of attention. And, you know, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about um, being at the highest level of competition. And today we're going to see who's victorious, you know. And every, like I said before, everybody's hopeful when you get yourself in that position. You're, you, uh, you're trying to be smart and aggressive at the same time. Uh, you're uh, picking where you take risk. And uh, is it the right time? Is it not the right time? You know, and everybody's second guessing too. You know, you mentioned that earlier. You know, we, we got a lot of armchair quarterbacks in the world, and they all got it figured out most of the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> indeed. And how going back to the the '83 PGA Championship, and you know, you win this huge Wanamaker Trophy. And and after all of the interviews and, and everything is over and you go back to where to, wherever it was that you were staying, you you got this trophy in your hand. What what was it like going back to the room and, and putting it down and there it is. I won the Wanamaker trophy. Yeah. Well, you know, you take a lot of pictures with the Wanamaker trophy, but you don't actually get that Wanamaker trophy. They give you something else that's a replica of it that's smaller in scale. And that's actually good because it's easier to travel with. Uh, but, you know, no trophy really represents what happened. Uh, you know, I'm 62 years old now, and I have a trophy room, just like I'm sure all my peers have a trophy room. But you look at the trophies and you think, you know, what does that really mean? You know, if that trophy wasn't sitting there, would I still feel what happened? And the answer to that is, yes, I would. You know, the trophy is more representation to someone else than it is. I have the memory of it and uh, the sense of accomplishment from it. And, you know, I did a dinner for 12 guys here in Houston that were all really good players. Went around the room, talked about what everybody's lowest score was, just period. And then, okay, what's your lowest score in competition? Everybody in the room had shot you know, even in competition, 66 or less. And, you know, the the one thought, the one word, if you had to sum it up, why these people played the game at the highest level is because they love to compete. They're competitors. And that's really what drove me in the game. I wanted to compete, you know, and I didn't need some hardware or something else to remind me that I had won something or I had come out on top at some point, you know, the, the memory of it. So and I guess, you know, maybe, maybe this, the answer to this question is nothing, but when I, when I think about um, getting the Wanamaker trophy, and you mentioned you get a replica, maybe a little bit smaller, I, I sort of think of those sort of big trophies, sort of like the Stanley cup, you know, and we hear all the crazy stories that guys do when they get the, the Stanley cup and they actually get the Stanley cup for a day. And uh, some of the craziness that goes on with it. Do you 
you do anything with the Wanamaker trophy? Did you drive around town with it in the passenger seat? Did you drink a bunch of champagne out of it? Did you have fun with it? Chris, that's been so long ago, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, my dad was with me at the event. I'll never forget that. I've got a picture hanging up in the trophy room with he and I both holding the Wanamaker trophy up. Uh, you know, what happened from there, I can't really recall. I remember getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning so that I could be on Good Morning America the next day. Oh and I was in Los Angeles and, you know, was in New York. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure I ever went to sleep that night, to be quite honest with you. It was such a big, uh, you know, big win, you know. You can, you're replaying it in your mind. And how I think typically when, when somebody wins a major, it's a pretty life changing event. It's a pretty positive, obviously thing to have happen in your life or to achieve in your life. Um, but when I think back to the things that I've read about you in the early part of your career and kind of some of the expectation, the high expectation that you came out of college with was, was it as, as great an event as it should have been, or did did people take a little bit of the joy away because they thought that's what you should have done? Uh, it's funny you ask that question. You know, to me, you know, I work with a lot of kids, and I one of the things that I talk about is to celebrate. You know, there has to be some celebration for accomplishment, and you know. So many people are driven so hard that uh, as soon as they've done something, they're moving on to the next thing. And, you know, to me, you have to appreciate the sense of accomplishment. Uh, it, you know, you work so hard to get to a point like that and then to be able to, you know, achieve the victory. You know, to me, I think you have to take a little moment to say, hey, job well done. And 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 the people around you that love you, they need to help you with that. And, uh, you know, I was pushed so hard that, and not just by my dad, but by the media, because everybody thought I was going to be the next Jack Nicholas. And, you know, if I wasn't living up to their expectations, I was failing, you know, or I was failing them. I wasn't a failure, but I was failing them. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Uh, I mean, I feel for Jordan Spieth right now because uh, you know, he's getting a lot of that sort of thing. He's living it in his own life. You know, he's he's not happy when he's playing golf. You can look at him and tell he's not happy. And, uh, you know, my advice to him is, hey, pick out who you want to be and work towards that regardless of what the world is doing and saying. Uh, you know, I mentioned one time before, you know, that, Somebody wrote in uh, Golf Digest that I'd never do any good at uh, Augusta because I didn't hit it high enough. Well, what did I do? I started working on trying to hit the ball higher. I started trying to become a, a different player when I got to Augusta. I wasn't even who I was because someone else said that's what I needed to do. And, I mean, impressionable, you know. We give too much credit to people that are doing this for a living. Uh, I mean, that aren't doing it for a living. They're just writing about it. and. You know, at 62 years old, I see that now. You know, it's like I wouldn't give anybody credit that that hadn't put the time in that I did. And so anyway. Well, 
to take that a step further, as you mentioned, Augusta National and trying to change things up, when you look back over your career, were there courses like Augusta National that um, it just didn't, whether it didn't fit your eye, uh, was frustrating, and you just you got into it and you're already filled with negative thoughts and think, well, I just can't play this daggum thing. Well, there were, but uh, Augusta was the only one that I really had to go back to all the time because, you know, once you got into Augusta, you wouldn't play Augusta. You know, the rest of the tour, if something didn't fit your eye, you didn't have to go. And, you know, so you ended up playing a lot of golf courses that that were more suitable to your game. And, you know, but if Augusta says you're in, you go. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, when you teed it up at Augusta, were you really trying to do all that stuff different throughout the course of your career? Or did you course correct and say, you know what, that strategy is not going to work. I got to go back to being me. Well, I tried to go back to being me, but here's the problem. Once you've gotten a lot of negative vibes at a golf course, uh, sometimes the negativity outweighs uh, any uh, change of course that you might have. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of uh, – I, I can't say I ever had a lot of good at Augusta. I had way more bad, and it seemed to be in my mind before I got there. And it just followed me around there. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys that actually look forward to going to Augusta. Um, so, Hal, let's let's talk. Let's change gears a little. Let's talk about the Players Championship. And and one of the things that I think most of us marvel at, and is not only your be the right club today shot on 18 and, and winning the Players Championship with that fantastic shot. But it's being able to stand up on the 17th tee when you're in the lead and you hit a great shot on that hole. From a from a focus perspective, how do you block out the the water, the wind, the pressure, and step up and hit it on that green? Well, you know that's not a terribly hard shot. I mean, we hit that shot millions of times in our life, and um, you know, 135 yard shot relatively large green what makes it a little bit smaller is the fact that it's got the big undulation in the middle so to get it on the right tier is more important than actually i mean it's most of the time we should be able to hit that green you know if the elements got really windy or something then it really becomes difficult or if you're like in 2000 on saturday i was in the last group and the green got really hard and i hit it a foot too far and it went over the green, I made six. Uh, that happens on that hole. A lot of times, good shots don't end up working there. And that's just part part of golf, you know? I mean, you have to be prepared for, uh, I can't tell you how many times over the course of 25 years out there, you hit a, a good shot and it doesn't work. And that's where you have to be strong inside. You know, you did all you could do and sometimes situations make you want to control the uncontrollable and that's where you start to go wrong because you can't control the uncontrollable and you know other people make you want to do that you know because they have their their expectations you know and you know family members sometimes make you want to do that control the uncontrollable but i tell you i spend a lot of time talking to kids about you cannot control the uncontrollable and don't even try. Right. Right. 
Hal, just a couple more before I let you go. And I saw a video tip you did a few years ago about how most of us either have too many swing thoughts or our thoughts are all about, you know, the swing backwards. And for you, if things aren't going well, you think about the ball forward. Talk about that. Well, I never was able to play with a backswing thought. And uh, I can practice a backswing thought, but I can't take a backswing thought to the golf course. Uh, I've got to look forward because the target is out in front of me. So I was always able to play much better with a downswing thought, which got me through the ball and thinking about where the ball's going to go. And, um, you know, to me, when I take my focus and put it on where the club head might be in the backswing or something, my mind's eye can't see the pin anymore. And, you know, to me, people that play great, they, their mind's eye never loses sight of where the hole is at. And, you know, you're looking at the ball, but your mind's eye knows where, where you're going. So I always played much better with a downswing thought. Hal, I went out to uh, to eBay and did a search on your name, and and one of the things that came up was a a Hal Sutton Yamaha Persimmon driver. You remember those? I do remember those. Yeah, that's going back you a remember? lot of years, Chris. No <laughs> doubt, <laughs> we've come a long way. You know, you remember yes, playing with have. you know that Persimmon head to what we got now? Well. The kids don't realize, I mean, that, I mean, I've said this many times, uh, the metal would change the game more than anything else. Uh, back in the days when we were playing persimmon, the best drivers won the most, to be honest with you. And now everybody's a good driver of the ball. And, uh, there's no separation really. The only separation with a driver is how far you can hit it. In the, in the persimmon days, the separation was how straight you could hit it. And because we fought that, none of us really tried to swing hard like the guys are today. I mean, if swinging hard only brought a more uh, left or right shot into play. And, you know, the object at that point was to get it in the fairway. And now everybody's in the fairway and hitting it 300 and some of them 50 and 60, 70 and 80 yards now with Bryson. I also found a uh, a lot of autographed golf balls on eBay, pictures that you've autographed, and there was a pin flag from the 2000 Players Championship that someone's asking $500 for. Does it make you feel good or amazed at at all that, you know, whether it's a pin flag or a trading card or a golf ball that, um, because you wrote on it, someone's willing to pay a bunch of money for it? It seems kind of crazy to me, but, uh, you know, I've reached a point in my life, we all do, where uh, reflection is all we have. And uh, I reflect back on my career and, you know, I see many things I wish I'd done differently and, and uh, some things that I think I did about as well as I could do. Uh, but really, all I have left to do is to help guide some young people into chasing their dreams. And uh, so that's what I enjoy doing. Do you do you reflect back and, and give yourself the credit that you deserve? Because you've accomplished so much in the game, way more than 
99.9% of the people that play it. Do you sit back and reflect and give yourself credit and think, I, I did pretty well here? Uh, you know, I've always been a kind of, I mean, my wife got on to me the other day about, you know, you don't give yourself enough credit. Um, you know, I, my mother used to get on to me about being humble all the time. And, um, you know, I, I seldomly think about what my accomplishments were and, uh, maybe I should do a better job of that. Well, I hope you will. Because you've accomplished so much in the game and you've given so much back to the game and you've given a heck of a lot of enjoyment to so many of us that have been following your career going back to the the early 1980s. I hope you'll give yourself some credit and allow that to kind of find its way into your heart to know that you've made a big impact and you've made a difference. And you certainly made a difference here on the show. And I can't thank you enough for coming back and doing it a second time. I hope you'll continue to come back because you mean a great deal to me. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. And I always enjoy visiting with you. And uh, you, You've got a lot of good insight on, uh, you, you understand the game at a higher level. And, you know, it's always fun to visit with people that understand the game. Uh, I've spent a lot of years, I mean, I'm 62 and I started playing when I was 11. So I got 51 years invested in this game. And I'm still learning, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of get, tickled when I talk to a kid that uh, kind of, I got it. I know, I know. And I'm like, mm, no, you don't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you will one day you will. I mean, you know, I, mean, I wish that there were there. I wished I had done it and I wish other kids would do it. If they could realize if they could take some advice from somebody that's been there instead of, I mean, they're trying to show you that they're good by saying, I got it. But they really need to understand, no, you don't have it, but you do want it. And this might help you get there quicker. <laughs> so That's right. Well, Hal, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with you, how they can follow you on social media. Well, it's uh, uh, we're starting a new uh, indoor facility here in Houston. It's called HalSuttonGolf.com. My email is Hal at HalSuttonGolf.com. So, uh that's the easiest way, probably. So, Well, I can't thank you enough for coming back, like I say, and being a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege of spending some time with you again soon. You're a lot of fun, and you know, you know, the things that you share and the insights that you provide are fantastic. So I hope you'll come back and share some more with us. All right, Chris. Thanks for having me. Take care, Hal. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. You too. That's a great Hal Sutton, HalSuttonGolf.com. You can follow him on social media at the same. He's, uh, I tell you, the insights that uh, that you get from Hal and, and kind of getting the opportunity to maybe get inside his brain just a little bit to understand some of the things that he achieved, some of the things he dealt with, some of the things he went through are fantastic. And uh, he means an awful lot to, uh, to me and the show. And uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with him again soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Charlie Meacham, I want to welcome another new sponsor to the show, Finn Cycle. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Finn for a course that has them near you. 
I also want to give another shout out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts. The resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Cairn provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now back with me here on Next on the T is Charlie Meacham. Folks, Charlie was uh, on the show just a couple of weeks ago, and he was so fascinating. I had to get him back on the show as quickly as I could. Let me remind you about his background. He's from Nelsonville, Ohio, which is a little southeast of Columbus. He graduated from Miami University of Ohio with his undergraduate degree and from Yale Law School. Charlie served three years in the Army. He was the chairman and CEO of Taft Broadcasting Company, which later became the Great American Broadcasting Company. In October of 1990, he became the commissioner of the LPGA. He's been a business advisor to several of golf's greatest legends like Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Julie Inkster, Annika Sorenstam, and Dottie Pepper. 2000, he was named a Great Living Cincinnatian, the highest honor awarded by the city of Cincinnati. He's written a couple of fantastic books. First, Total Anecdotal, a fun and unique guide to help you become a better speaker and writer. And Who's That with Charlie, which is so fascinating that once you pick it up, you're not going to be able to put it down. He's got his own podcast called 15 Minutes with Charlie. And I'm honored he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Charlie, thanks for joining me again. You know, if I had any brains, I'd uh, say thank you and hang up. I don't know how I could do any better. (laughs) 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 That's great. Charlie, I want to start off our time tonight by going back to your childhood in Nelsonville. You grew up as a kid. You, You played baseball, basketball, football. You ran track. And I read that you almost drowned playing football. How did that happen? <laughs> well, first of all, in a town as small as Nelsonville, uh, you could play any you wanted to. It didn't matter whether you were any good or not, uh, because there weren't that many kids. So if you wanted to play, you played. The football story, though, is, is absolutely uh, remarkable. I was playing in a game against a, 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 an opposing team called Pomeroy, Ohio, P-O-M-E-R-O-Y. And it, we had torrential rains throughout the game. And I wasn't very big, but I could, I could block pretty well. So I was the blocking back for, we had a really great tailback. And on this one play, I uh, came around and I, I did a, 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 a 
side body block and knocked down this guy who's about six six, big tall guy. In fact, he was he was the center on their basketball team, and he fell right on my head, and it pushed my head down to this puddle of water, which is probably by that time a couple inches deep. And I remember thinking, am I going to drown on a football field? But happily, <laughs> he moved his legs so I could get loose, and I did. <laughs> and Charlie, your family owned a shoe store, your grandfather, your father, uncle. And you know, yeah. based on that, I'm surprised you weren't CEO of FootJoy at some point. But talk about Meekum. <laughs> no, I never had any interest in, in following in, in the in the in family business, I sort of always had a dream of being a lawyer. My dad actually wanted me to, to be a lawyer. So uh, I, I moved in that direction. Charlie, I got to ask you, and obviously you graduated from Yale Law School, became a lawyer. Harder to pass the bar exam or harder to, be, to become uh, LPGA or take over as uh, commissioner of the LPGA? Passing the bar exam was the scariest, toughest thing I ever did. Um, I, I was a I was a wreck for uh, for weeks coming up to the time of the bar exam. It lasted in those days. It lasted three days, like six or seven hours a day. And you know, I just got wow. out of my third year of law school. I was exhausted anyway. So uh, I was convinced that I wouldn't I wouldn't pass. And that made me even more nervous. But anyway, make a long story short, I did. But that was by far the most challenging thing I've ever had to do. And then you go on to to join a very prestigious law firm that uh, was sort of headed up by Robert Taft Jr., who would go on to be Senator Taft, following in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather, who just happened to be President William Howard Taft. What was Correct. it like coming out of law school and joining a a law firm like that? A lot of pressure, but a lot of gratitude because, as you know, somebody once said, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna go for something, go for it. Don't uh, don't take uh, second or third third fiddle. So uh, when I had the opportunity to join that firm, which was by far the most prestigious firm. And in those days, this is, we're talking now 1955, there were only 20 lawyers in that firm. Now there are seven or 800. So I felt privileged. I felt very challenged and I never looked back. It was a, a wonderful turning point in, uh, in my career. And as a new kid on the block, I imagine you were put in charge of a case that no one had been able to close, a case where the U.S. government was trying to claim money from one of the firm's clients who owed actually money back to a company in Germany that you had yep. to go take care of. Tell that story. This this proves that luck is better than brains uh, every time. The, the uh, client of my firm uh, was sued by an organization called the Alien Property Custodian, which in World War II was set up to claim assets that were owed by German companies to the United States. So our company was told that we had to cough up 
a certain amount of money because the Germans owed that to us and needed to be paid. So I went over there with my wife, and and they were we were treated very well uh, because this was about nineteen oh fifty seven, I guess fifty eight, and uh, we were treated well because they didn't have any interest in in uh, doing anything other than just helping us. So uh, I I was left alone one day in a in a room where all of the documents that they had survived the bombing, many of their documents had been burned up in the bombings. But I was going through page by page this uh, document, and it was sort of a uh, a ledger. And I couldn't speak German, but I had a German interpreter with me, and I I saw this this entry on on the ledger that looked very much to me as though the German company had had written off the uh, the the amount owed by my client. So I said to the uh, interpreter, I said, "This looks like a a write off to me, like they wrote off." the money that, that we owed them. He said, that's exactly what it is. So I talked to the, the executives for the, the uh, German company, and I said, Was it, why did you do this? And they said, well, we figured that after the war, there were, nobody was going to pay anything to anybody. So we just thought it was a worthless investment, so we just wrote it off. So I said, would you be, re- be willing to sign an affidavit in which you state as a company that my company, my client named Baldwin Lima Hamilton, never owed you, or at the end of the war, owed you no money. They said, sure, because that was right. So I got that affidavit, sent it back. Of course, my boss and my client were thrilled, and uh, we got out of the case and didn't pay a dime. But there's a case where when I was going through those uh, those documents, uh, first of all, we were lucky to even have that document left, not having destroyed. And secondly, for me to be able to find it and and have uh, the ability to pull it up and, and use it, I guarantee you, more luck than brains, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, as, as your uh, career started to you know com- completely take off, you, you end up becoming friends with Paul Brown legendary head coach of the Cleveland Browns and who would become the original owner of the Cincinnati Bengals. Talk about your relationship with him and then how you had to try to convince him to become the owner of the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. One day, my uh, senior partner in my law firm called me into his office and he said, uh, Charles, my son, John, wants to be, uh, wants to go for an NFL franchise, because they had they had indicated Pete Rozelle was the commissioner then, and Rozelle had indicated that there was going to be a franchise awarded. And uh, he said, "We called Rozelle and we said uh, we want to we want to go after this. What do we do?" And Rozelle said, "What you do is you go sign Paul Brown to come back to Cincinnati because whoever gets Paul Brown gets." the next franchise. And his reasoning behind that was that Paul was by far, and I think generally acknowledged, the one person in the United States in the football world 
who could build a franchise from the ground up, not just coach, but build the franchise. So I, uh, of course, I admired Paul Brown. I was overwhelmed with the chance to uh, to meet him. And so a couple of us uh, went out to La Jolla, California, where he was sitting. He'd been fired by the Browns. And uh, I used to kid him. I said, you were sitting out in La Jolla like a deposed South American dictator because he was getting a couple <laughs> hundred grand a year. Uh, but he wanted desperately to get into football, back into football. So I uh, negotiated with him for two or three days, and uh, we we made a deal. It was not an easy deal to make, but it was a good deal. Uh, he said, look, uh, I can only afford to buy 20% of the stock, but I insist upon control of the franchise because I, I will never allow what happened to me in Cleveland to happen again. So I talked to my clients, and we worked out an arrangement, which I suggested to them, which was called a voting trust. In a voting trust, all the shareholders put their their voting shares in a trust, and then you appoint a trustee. And we appointed Paul Brown as a trustee. So he only owned 20% outright, but he voted 100%. And that style, that trust lasted for many, many, many years. So he came back to Cincinnati and, of course, built the Bengals and not doing well the last few years, but we had a couple of great years under Paul, went to the Super Bowl twice and hadn't been for Joe Montana and the Niners. We probably would have won both times. But <laughs> the story that I remember most is the night that we completed the negotiations, Paul invited me and a couple of the other guys up to his uh, home for dinner. And his home sat on one of those high La Jolla mountains looking out into the Pacific Ocean. It was about sun sundown when we sat down and we had a drink and we're both sitting alone on this big couch looking out as the sun dipped into the Pacific Ocean. And I said, Paul, I know you feel good about things, but I've got to be honest with you. We can fire you any time we want. And he stiffened. And he looked, what are you talking about? I said, Paul, there's a clause in the contract that we signed with you that says we can fire you at any time without cause if you are determined to be physically or mentally incapacitated. And I said, anyone who would leave this scene and go back to Cincinnati, Ohio to coach football is mentally incapacitated. <laughs> we had a big laugh about that. And then I became the lawyer for the Bengals and uh, spent a few years uh, in, in that role before uh, Tap Broadcasting summoned me. And so it was a great time. Paul was an incredible character. I admired him. I loved him. And uh, he's not given the credit that he deserves. For example, Belichick coached under him at the Browns, and Belichick has been quoted as, as saying that Brown was the greatest coach that he'd ever seen. So uh, it's good. I'm, I'm happy to give a little, have a little opportunity to talk about Paul because he was fantastic. He also got to play a little golf with him, and and I read he was a uh, a stickler for the rules, like you know, no two off the oh. first tee. No rolling the ball in the fairway. Talk about playing was, golf with him. He was terrible. 
we, uh, I mean, he was a good golfer. I wasn't. But he invited me to play with him at uh, in California at La Costa. And in those days, the uh, the on the first tee, the first house in the uh, as you went down the first tee belonged to the then head of the Teamsters Union of the United States. Pretty tough company. So I was a little nervous, and I hit the ball right over into this guy's lawn. So. Paul, he had sort of a, he never raised his voice, sort of a soft voice, and I heard him saying, you're hitting three. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, this is a fun game. I'm, you're hitting three. So I hit three, and I hit ball down the middle of the fairway, and it went right into a divot. And, of course, the way I play with my pals, you just roll that out. But I was pretty intimidated by what he did to me on the, after the drive, and I said, hey, Paul, can I lift, can I just roll this out of the divot? And he said, is there water in it? <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> if it was casual water in the divot, I I could roll out. Otherwise, I couldn't. So uh, we played a lot, a lot of golf together, and he was a stickler for the rules, which was good. Uh, and uh, I don't know that I ever beat him <laughs> either. So... <laughs> Well, tell the story about the time he took a 12 on the first hole. Oh, this is incredible. We were playing in Muirfield Village in Columbus, Ohio, Nicholas's course. And uh, I had a foursome that these four guys and the four wives went to uh, Muirfield Village every summer around the 4th of July. And uh, it was quite a foursome, by the way. Paul and Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, and a man named George Rivashal, who was the inventor of Benadryl. So uh, I was the only one in the group nobody ever heard of. So we had a good time, though, and uh, on the first hole, this one day, it rained a little. We had to wait a little for our tee-off time. And uh, Paul hit his second shot into a bunker on the right side of number one fairway, number one uh, green. I honestly doubt if Paul had been in a, in a bunker for 20 years, but he was in this one. So he scuffed it out. It went across the green into the next the bunker on the other side. Well, this happened until he got close enough to putt out for a 12. Well, we walked to the second tee. We all kind of looked at one another. We didn't know what to say. Nobody, honest to God, Chris, nobody said a word until the sixth tee because we didn't know what to say. And Paul wasn't saying anything. And so finally on the sixth tee, he turned to us and sort of smiled. And he said, I think that may be the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably had a, never had another 12 after that. <laughs> It's it's interesting you mentioned like that foursome because uh, as I was reading one of the other stories, uh, there was a uh, a round where uh, Neil Armstrong tops it off the first tee, hacks it, you know, up the fairway or tries to, you know, through the rough and and, and hacked it several times and and most of us at some point would have probably given up and just picked up, but that's not who Neil Armstrong was. He was going to play it out regardless if he was going to take a four or he was going to take a twenty. Talk about playing he, with Neil. 
he never, ever picked up. Neil was not a good golfer, but he was an engineer, and he figured out, by God, there's got to be a way to hit that ball. And uh, we were both about 18 handicaps, and we loved playing together, and we'd occasionally have a, a decent round. But this one day at Mirfield, I think it was number 17, in those days, had a uh, a bunker, a big bunker, running the entire length of the fairway, almost to the green. Well, he hit over into, into that bunker, and we go over, and Neil takes three or four shots, advances the ball probably 10 yards, hits it again 10 more yards, on and on. So finally, after about the fifth swipe, Paul Brown looks in stage whisper again, says, is this the man that went to the moon? <laughs> <laughs> and we we all broke up, and but Neil, he kept going. I think he took a 13 or a 14 on that hole, but he said, "By God, I'm gonna I'm gonna play by the rules," and he did. <laughs> Charlie, I think like last I mentioned to you last time, I'm a, I'm a big space nut, and uh, we're a few weeks shy of the 51st anniversary of the Apollo right. 11 mission, and it's right. been a right. been a lot of stories that we've heard, at least I've heard over the years, about them seeing strange things up there, and you know different controversies about the Apollo 11 mission and, and Buzz Aldrin yeah. wanting to be the first guy out and, and sort of all that sort of stuff. Did Neil ever talk about that? He, he never really talked about the moon as such. If you ask him a question, he would answer it. But he, uh, this sounds silly to say, he never considered it that big a deal. And I said to him one time, Neil, come on. You were the first man on the moon. There'll never be another. He said, look, there were a thousand people that got me there, and uh, I'm not going to claim credit. All I did was follow what they told me to do. Well, obviously, I felt that was an overstatement, but he genuinely believed it. The other thing I would say is that you can you can debunk all of these conspiracy theories. They're all just nonsense. I suspect, I mean, it's human nature that Buzz would have liked to have been the first man. Who wouldn't have? So I I can't say that that's not true. But a lot of the things that were said, the conspiracies, the, the most ridiculous, of course, being that it was all done on a soundstage in Vegas. Um, the, Neil was so honest. It was amazing. And he just, as he said, I just did what they told me. He, I'll tell you one funny story. They had a great, he had a great uh, sense, sense of humor. And, uh, a friend of mine took him out on a boat in Florida to deep sea fish. And I was not there, but my friend told me the story that the captain of the boat was just was just ecstatic over the thought that Neil Armstrong would be on his boat that day. So they get on the boat and they start out in the ocean. The captain says, Mr. Armstrong, I'm so flattered to have you uh, on the boat. But, you know, the thing I've never understood about your moon mission was, how did you navigate? How did you find your way there? And Neil smiled and said, well, wasn't too hard. We could just, we could see it right out the side window. <laughs> so he was that way. He, he never, never uh, made the deal out of it that it really was. And he retired relatively shortly after the Apollo 11 mission. I, I read he retired in 1971, the mission being in 69. And I always imagined 
it was because, you know, what else was he ever going to do that was going to top walking on the moon? Was that I, why? I think you got that exactly right. I think you got it. He had, he had done it. He got back safely. Uh, he didn't want to, you know, as you say, what's next? So I think you're right. And I also read the story that he took you down to Cape Canaveral to watch the night launch of the Apollo <laughs> 17, which was our last mission, but forgot his wallet and his ID. Oh. Talk about forcing him to be recognized. This was a riot. A friend of mine and I, he invited us to go to the first night moon launch. So we met him. We rendezvoused in Tampa. We were all coming from somewhere else. And we drove across the peninsula to uh, Cape Canaveral. And Neil was driving. We get about 20 miles, just about the first checkpoint, because there were a dozen checkpoints you had to go through. And Neil's kind of looks down and pats his pipe. Said, oh, my God. He said, I, I forgot my wallet. I forgot my identification. So my friend and I look at one another, and we both are thinking the same thing. We're going to come to the first checkpoint, and the guard's going to say, who are you? He's going to say, I'm Neil Armstrong. And they're, they're going to say, yeah, and I'm George Washington. Get out of here. <laughs> so we, there was nothing we could do. We were so close. So we get to the first checkpoint, and the uh, Neil rolls down the window. And before he could say anything, the guard said, wow, aren't you Neil Armstrong? And my pal, said, yes, yes. It's Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Don't ask for anything ID. So from then on, we were we were in uh, we were cool. <laughs> he was that way, though. He, I don't know. You could never you could never discount his brilliance. But it was a little bit maybe like Einstein. I remember one time when when uh, the first time I ever saw him play poker, he sat down around the table, six or eight of us, everybody brings her money out and, and puts it down very neatly. He reached in his pocket and came out with what you might have thought was a handful of cabbage, just all his dollars, all his bills, all messed up uh, from hundreds to ones and on and on. So he uh, he had that side to him. But when it, when it counted, don't ever bet against him. Charlie, just a couple more before I let you go. And, yeah. And with everyone that you've talked about and hanging out with and being around, the last time you talked about Mr. Palmer and obviously Mr. Yeah. Nicholas and Armstrong and Paul Brown, Tommy Thayer from Kiss, I yeah. saw in one of your one of your stories. Well, that's a that's a big uh, big swing from those guys. How do you know Tommy Thayer from Kiss? Well, Tommy Thayer is a member of the golf club down in La Quinta, California to which I belong. And I got to know him because he did several uh, appearances to benefit a scholarship fund that we set up to honor Arnold Palmer, Arnold Palmer uh, College Scholarships. So I got to know Tommy, and the, the, the better I got to know him, the better I liked him. He's just a wonderful guy. It's interesting. He comes from a military family. His father was a a general during World War II. His mother was a classical cellist. Uh, Tommy has a great appreciation of of, of music. Has two brothers. Uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And so 
I have a little company that does uh, uh, some uh, programming, and he's uh, a partner of ours. And we're doing a couple of shows together, but I can't say enough for Tommy Thayer as a person and as a creative artist. But you're right. It's strange bedfellows. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, speaking of, of Mr. Palmer, and obviously you spent many years as a, a, a consultant, a friend, a confidant with Mr. Palmer. Does it seem like it, to me it doesn't, but does, is it co- coincidental at all that you think that NBC waited until uh, Mr. Palmer passed away before they decided to pick up the Golf Channel and move it to Connecticut? I doubt if that had any connection. Uh, there were a lot of other issues there, some of which I'm privy to, some of which I'm not. But I think that uh, Arnie's... Let's, let, let me back up a little bit. Had Arnie still been alive, it probably would have been a tougher decision. And you may be right. It may not have been a decision that was made at all. But I honestly do not believe that there was a causal connection between Arnie's not being in Florida and the Gulf Channel moving. Well, Charlie, before I let you go, again, you've written two wonderful books, and and Who's That with Charlie is a, is a book that you just can't put down. As soon as you start to read it, I mean, it's one fantastic story, like you've shared you. You know, the two times Thank you've been on this show, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. Talk about right. how people can get a copy of either one of your books, and then stay up to date with what you're doing. Well, I think I think either book or both books are still available on Amazon. I presume Barnes and Noble, uh, and I have a, uh, a website, just Charlie Meacham, and of course podcasts I've done, fifteen minutes with Charlie. So there are a variety of ways. If you just Google Charlie Meacham or possibly Charles Meacham, you can come up with all the the handles that uh, that you need. So. Uh, I'm flattered that you, uh, you've had me on your show. I've enjoyed it immensely and, uh, I, I enjoy visiting with you anytime. Well, Charlie, I can't thank you enough. You're endlessly fascinating and I'm sure there's still lots more stories to, to share and talk about. So I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again soon. You give me a, a ring and we'll, uh, we'll set it up because I, I love the way you prepare, the way you, uh, uh, come up with the stories that, of course, I love to, to recount again. And so uh, I'm yours at any time. <laughs> ah, thank you very much for that, Charlie. You're fantastic, you, my friend. Take job. care, stay safe, and we'll catch up soon. You bet. Good work, pal. Bye-bye. Th- thank you, Charlie. See ya. That's a great Charlie Meacham. And, folks, I promise you, you know, when you pick up that book, um, y- it's just one wonderful story after another. Who's that with Charlie? Um, I, you know, the, the number of people that he has been in and around, you know, when, when you think about it is, is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, how do you, how do you top that? Right. I mean, it's just one, one legend after another that he got to spend time with and then recanting the stories. It, it's fantastic. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. All right, folks, it's time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Hal Sutton, and Charlie Meacham for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net. On there, you'll be able to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, you'll be able to stream or download 
many of our archive episodes. And we also link back to our page over on podcast.co and that's .co. So podcast.co, we've got all of our archive episodes there. You can also stream this show as a podcast over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm. We are all over the net. So, folks, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your life to, to come back and be a part of the show and keep us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.